Merry Christmas. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I think we all need a little bit of aerobics right now, so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, and if you're willing and able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You may be seated. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we come to feed on your word, even as we need Christ himself to be our heavenly food, I ask that you would equip us with strength by your spirit in our inner being so that we would be able to pay attention and to know what it is that you have for us in these words. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So he says this, and any time a passage of Scripture begins with the word this, he's referring to what has happened in the past. And we talked at length about Jesus being the uh, one through whom the new covenant comes. And we talked at length the last time we were together about the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. So just as a reminder from two weeks ago, what is a covenant? A covenant is the strongest kind of promise. It's the strongest, most important kind of promise. And also as a reminder, we discussed this last time we were together, why do we need a better covenant? Okay, so you've explained what a covenant is in the first place. Why do we need a better one? Was there something wrong with the other one? What's going on? For uh, three reasons we need a new covenant, a better covenant. The old covenant did not fix the main problem. The better and new covenant does. The old covenant depends in part on the faithfulness of men. The new covenant depends only on the faithfulness of Jesus. The old covenant needed to be kept in place every year. The new covenant is made once for all time. So 
we come to verse 22, and we discussed this briefly last time we were together in Hebrews, but we didn't have time to address this word, the guarantor. It's not really a word that we use frequently unless you're involved in the practice of law like Paul Christensen. I'm sure he's familiar with this word. What is a guarantor? A guarantor is the one who guarantees a promise or covenant. The one who guarantees a promise or covenant. And this is very important for our faith. Here's an example. A lot of you, hopefully, have already completed your Christmas shopping. I have not, so I feel very behind. The days until Christmas are very short, and I still have several things to do. But when you purchase something, even if you're buying it online, there usually comes with it a satisfaction guarantee, right? But what if a company had a satisfaction guarantee, so they're labeling their products, saying satisfaction guarantee on this toy that you're buying or this gift for your spouse that you're buying, satisfaction guarantee, but in their policy, in the fine print, it said no returns. Would that make any sense at all? It'd be corporate America, and that would make sense, but it, it wouldn't make sense for a company to say, your satisfaction is guaranteed, but you can't return anything if you're unhappy. So guaranteeing your promise of satisfaction is important, meaning if you have an issue with what you've bought, you can come and we will, with the, the power that we have as a company and the resources, we'll make it right to you. They're guaranteeing the promise of satisfaction. And so Jesus is the guarantor, the one who guarantees the promise of God, the covenant that he's made. So why is this important to our faith? Why, why should God make guarantees? Why should he strengthen the extent of the promise? If God gives us a promise, shouldn't we be able to say, well, we agree with God. His promises are sure. Why does he go above and beyond and give us a guarantee? There's a couple of reasons. Very important. A blind leap doesn't honor God. Okay, that's very important for your faith and how you think about God. Blind leaps of faith, it's not real biblical faith, blind leaps don't honor God. And they're not helpful to us. You should trust God because He is trustworthy. You should trust God because He's good in spite of the calamity when it comes. But God even takes it a step further. He's given us as you heard last week, preached by our brother Jonah, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And then he takes it even a step further. Not only does he give us these great and very precious promises, he guarantees them. So how does God guarantee his promises? How does God guarantee the covenant? And you might be expecting a long, complicated answer, especially knowing me. You might think that the answer can't be simple. How, you know, I'm struggling to even grasp the idea of God's promises and his covenants. And so then you have a guarantee of those promises and covenants. So certainly it can't be simple. You might think it's something mysterious in heaven, hidden, out of sight, too difficult to understand. No. The guarantee of God's promises, all of them, especially the best of them, found in this new, better covenant, is in one simple, glorious, tangible, provable, steadfast, unchangeable, and indestructible way. 
Jesus is God's guarantee of his promises. You might have been thinking as we read this text, well, that's not really a Christmas verse. It absolutely is. Jesus is the guarantor, the one who guarantees the promises of God. So what does it have to do with Christmas? Nothing short of everything. What are we celebrating? We're celebrating the arrival of the guarantee of God's promises. And we can make it so cute and cuddly sometimes. I mentioned this last year. The scene in Bethlehem was not pretty. It wasn't pristine. It was a barn. The manger was a trough. It's earthy. But what is present, what is weighty and glorious in that moment, is this is God communicating the gravity of His promises. How do we know, God, that you're serious, that you're going to save us and that you're going to forgive our sins, that you have goodwill towards us? Here's my son. Here's my son. We should take God seriously because the guarantee of his promises is God himself, his very son, the eternal one. In a trough, no less, a body you have prepared for me. And we feed on his goodness, the very bread of heaven. God's glory and honor is so great that to ensure and guarantee his promises so that none of them will be broken. The son of God himself enters human history. And so my gift to you, and I'm going to kind of turn this a little bit more towards an individual application here and take this as a thread through the rest of this message. This is my attempt to give you a Christmas gift. Um, if you recall the story when Jesus meets Simon for the first time, what does he do? He changes his name. No explanation. You are Simon, and now you're Peter. He just changes his name. He gives him a new name, a new identity, a new life purpose, and everything's new and everything's different and almost no explanation right in the first moment of meeting him. So the gift of knowing who you are and what your life is supposed to be about is very precious. And there are a lot of self-worth lies that exist in our culture, even in Christian culture. But God has given you these promises and he's given his son to guarantee these promises. And Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, fulfills these promises. But more than that, these promises represent a path, an entry point, a doorway into a completely new life. And it's different than you might think. Don't let the world tell you what is an acceptable answer for who you are and what you want your life to be about. What I want to give you as your gift this Christmas, even if you've been a Christian a long time, is a new name and a new meaning for your life. And again, it might not be what you think. I don't want you to be comfortable at the end of this message. 
I want to agitate you. I want to get down to the foundation of who you think you are, no matter how old or young you are. I want you to leave this room with some serious questions about what it means to be you, what it means to be a Christian, with some serious questions and glorious truths to do some serious reconstruction. So Merry Christmas. And then he says in verses 23 and 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So we could ask the question, author of Hebrews, how is the new covenant better than the old covenant? How is Jesus in this new covenant so much better? The author begins to answer that question. And here's his premise. The new covenant is better because our high priest is better. And what follows in the rest of these verses is a comparison between the high priests of old and Jesus our great high priest. There are at least four comparisons in this passage, these two verses. The first one is that there are multiple priests under the old covenant versus in the new and better covenant, one priest. Multiple priests versus one priest. And that may not seem like a big deal to you, but, but think about this. Every time that a high priest died and he gave the priestly garments over to his son, the person who was in the line of succession, or in our culture, when we elect a new president or when we have a new Congress, or in the old days when you had a king and a king passed away and it passes on to another king, there was always some question, as I'm sure you can feel in yourself, whether or not the good progress that has been made will be continued. Or if the bad progress or the digression will continue in the new administration, in the new ruler. So that question is always in the mind in the old covenant. Will this high priest, this new high priest, the son of the previous high priest, will he be faithful? Will he lead and administer the rites and sacrifices rightly? So every time there is passing of the torch, you have that question, that fear, that trepidation. Not so with Christ. He is your priest forever. He is one and continues forever. There is no priest after Christ. We have one person and only one who is unchangeable and incorruptible who reigns as king and priest. So what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with your identity and what you want your life to be about? It's this question, who's really in charge? Who's really in charge for you? Who determines your relationship to God? Who tells me what I ought to do and ought not to do? Who tells me what is acceptable worship and what is unacceptable worship? Your great high priest does. He's in charge. He's the boss. Not the thoughts of your mind or what you feel about God or what you think God is telling you in the inner voice in your mind, but the very words of Christ. Do you love him? Keep his commandments. That's what it means to follow your high priest, that you keep his commandments, the ones that we actually have. Second contrast or comparison in this verse. The old priests were limited by death. 
versus the Son of God who conquered over death. Limited by death versus conquering over death. The reason there were so many high priests under the Old Covenant is that the men of the Old Covenant were sinners just like you and me, and because of sin they died. But Jesus died too, didn't he? He did. But his resurrection from the dead is what inaugurates him, what begins his ministry as high priest. God appoints him as high priest on the basis of his resurrection. He conquered death. And his death did not prevent him from serving as your high priest. So what does this have to do with you and your life and your identity as a Christian? Where am I going and what is my destiny? What is my life really about? Where am I going? Just like the priest of old, you will die. You and I are transgressors of the law of God and the wages of sin is death. But if Christ has been made your great high priest, he is not satisfied to be the priest of the dead. Because Jesus lives and because he reigns and rules and serves as high priest, you must be raised. Do you get that? It's not just a blessing he offers to those who believe in him. It must be the case for those who follow him. Because Jesus as great high priest deserves living people. A living people to minister to and serve. You must live forever if you're in Christ. Because he deserves you. Your destiny is not just to go to some idyllic paradise where you, we can be on a perpetual vacation. Your fate and destiny is to be with the Lord Jesus, ministering with him in his very own priesthood. That's your destiny as a Christian. The third contrast in this verse, the old priests were limited by time. But Jesus is the creator of time. This comes from this word continues. He continues forever. And obviously this means he lives forever. But we've already talked about that. This means he continues as priest forever. Always and forever. At all moments. It is not that just that he exists forever and lives forever. He's always serving and working and ministering on your behalf as your great high priest. What does this have to do with me, Pastor Joshua? What does this have to do with me and my life and what I'm about, what my life path should be? Well, think of this. What do you do at every moment of every day? Is there anything you do every single moment of your life? You know, you, I, we're coming up on New Year's, so many of you will probably get a new gym membership, maybe. I probably should. And if you're there every day, you can be called a gym rat, right? You're just always in the gym, always working out. But eventually you go home. Eventually you have to sleep. Eventually you have to eat, just like the priests of old. They ministered as high priests, but they had to go to sleep at some point. They had to do all sorts of things that didn't have anything to do with their ministry as high priest. Not so with Christ. Every moment, if he is existing, which he is and will forever, he is serving you as your high priest. He makes intercession for you 
praying for you every moment. You belong to a new covenant. You are in Christ. You've been given a new law in Christ. You've been given a place at the table in the family of God. And you've been given the charge to bring others into this new covenant. Can anything that glorious be limited to attending church two to three times a month? Or even being here every time the doors are open? Such a covenant, such a life, such a high priest demands, has earned your everyday, every moment devotion to him. Because he always serves Every moment of your existence in his, he is serving you as your great high priest. All of your life and all of my life is for him. Fourth contrast in this verse, temporary service versus permanent service. They serve at a limited time, but a limited time is temporary, right? It, it, it has to stop at some point. They died, so they, can't, they can no longer serve you as high priest because they died. They can only offer so much help. Any and all, and this, this is where you bring it to Christ and see how much greater Christ is, is that any and all of God's blessing and help and guidance towards you will forever and only be in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no blessing of God outside of the person of Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is only and always and forever exclusively in Christ. He offers a permanent service towards you. It will forever and always be in him. You will never be able to approach God in any sense or appropriate any of his blessings to you or seek any guidance or counsel that is not found and isolated and glorified in the person of Jesus. So what does it have to do with me and my life and who I think I am and what I want my life to be about? Well, where do you go to get help and healing and refreshing and strength? Especially around this time of year. Is it family and friends? Is it vacations, movies, food, trips, your workplace? Not that any of those things are wrong or bad. But where do you go for your help? Where is your strength? Where is your hope? Where is your joy? What about Christ? This is from John Owen in his book, The Glory of Christ. By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distress, ungoverned passions and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness and confusion. But... Where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace. And that's just the beginning. Verse 25. Consequently, or because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives 
to make intercession for them. So let's begin with a question because this is a weird word. What does uttermost mean? It means simply this. It means to the highest and farthest and best degree possible. The most extreme, the highest, farthest, and best degree possible. There are several things that you could say are to the uttermost. But why, why not just say regarding God, he can save you? Right? Why, why does the author feel the need to say he is able to save to the uttermost? Because this saving power of Jesus reaches to the very depths of death and the grave and the curse of sin and the destiny of hell where we deserve to be because of our sin. And this utmost saving power brings us all the way from there to the very heights of heaven, even above the heavens, forever safe in God's care and love, ministering, and ruling with Christ in the spirit to the glory of God. All the way from the very depths to the very heights and even above the very heights. That is God's utmost saving power in Christ. But notice there's a qualification. This uttermost saving power is limited to those who draw near to God through him. This is so important. It is not those who are spiritual get to receive this uttermost saving power. It is not those who like Jesus' teaching who get to receive this uttermost saving power. It is not the good, respectable Americans who get to receive this uttermost saving power. It is not those who are nice who get to receive this uttermost saving power. It is for those who draw near to God through Christ. It is exclusively for those who are in Him. But for those who do draw near to God through him, Jesus's eternal life becomes yours. See, you need to understand you're not given eternal life as like a benefit. You receive Jesus's life itself. And that's why it must be eternal. You, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what does this have to do with you and your life and what you think everything is about and what you want to do? Well, let me ask you this question. This is important. It may sound very basic. Do you believe that God can save you? Do you really believe that God can save you? If you don't, just be warned, don't defy his claim that he can't, it's not just that he can save, but he can save you to the uttermost. And if you do believe that he can save you, you probably don't believe nearly enough. And I can say that because I know myself. And I can say that because the author of Hebrews himself is writing this letter to strengthen the confidence of his hearers in the saving power of Christ so that they might have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, which you and I need. And here's a test or an application. 
Do you believe that the salvation and life you have available to you in Christ is better than any alternative version of your life you could possibly imagine? You might ask, well, what has that got to do with it? A life of joy-filled obedience issues or flows from a rock-solid confidence that He can save you. Because a life spent in devotion to and obedience to Christ will look to the world and even many within the parameters of those who call themselves Christians like a wasted life, like foolishness. And even Paul says the same thing. If we have hope in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied because devotion to Christ doesn't look like worldly success. It is sacrifice. It is persecution. It is suffering. And there's a lot of blessing. There's a lot of days that aren't necessarily that. But in this world, you will have troubles. Anyone who would come after me must take up his cross, his execution device, and follow me. Deny himself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's a wasted life if this isn't true. But we hedge our bets. We insulate ourselves from the radical call of obedience and sacrifice that is there for us in the salvation that is in Christ. But you don't feel like you have to. Honestly, you don't feel like you have to hedge your best if you really believe that He can save you to the uttermost. There's no question in your mind, this will be worth it. You might ask me, well, what do you want me to do? It's not like there's a book in the Bible that tells me exactly what I'm supposed to do every day. That's why we spent so long on chapter 3, verse 13, isn't it? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a verse, there is a place in the Bible that tells you exactly what you're supposed to be doing every day. So are you going to do that, or are you going to hedge your bets? with a comfortable life that at the end of it, even if it turns out not to be true, you're okay. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We'll try to get through these quickly. There are at least five comparisons in this text. This idea of fitting. So it's awkward versus fitting. Awkward versus fitting. Think of the awkwardness of someone serving as your high priest who is also a sinner himself. This just doesn't feel right. And this should have given an indication and did for those who were spiritual under the old covenant that we need something else. We need a different high priest because these guys, they got to offer sacrifice for their own sins. So eventually we're going to need someone Somehow, who doesn't need to do that? What about you and your life and who you're going to be? How does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with you? How much do you let other sinners like you influence you and dictate your life? I'm not talking about being insubordinate. We all have authorities in our life and we're supposed to be subject to them. 
I'm talking about seeking approval of man. People who set your values for you that you let have so much influence over you. Expectations, the fear of man. Where Christ, who has no sin, has given you a way that he expects you to live and how you ought to devote your time and resources. But we spend all our time and resources trying to please and find approval with men who are sinners just like us. If you have one person to be concerned about pleasing, serving, and seeking, and enjoying. This is God's gift to you that you just have one. There's only one person whose opinions about you, whose perspective on you, and whose desire for your life really matters. That's the Lord Jesus. Also, there's a contrast of holy versus sinful. So you can see this. Uh, in the text that Jesus himself is holy versus the old priests who were sinful. The holiness of Christ is such a beautiful and comforting truth. We'll just jump right to the application. What does this have to do with you? The Christ's holiness and his his uh, perfect track record, his perfect life, his holiness that he lived in while he was here. What does that have to do with you? And to this, I would turn to John Bunyan and his conversion story when he realized your righteousness is in heaven. Think about that. I've mentioned it before. You really need to get this. This has unending benefits for you and joyful yield in your life. Your righteousness is in heaven. The track record that God looks at if you are in Christ is his holiness. It is credited to you through faith. His holiness becomes yours in Christ. And if if that doesn't shake the very foundations of what your motivations are, trying to please God, trying to earn his favor, we'll talk about this in a little bit. I don't know what can. Your righteousness is in heaven. Jesus' very own holiness has been credited to you. Also, we have a contrast of tainted versus pure. Tainted versus pure. You can see this when he says, uh, unstained, that Jesus remained pure. The, the Old Testament or Old Covenant priests were tainted through sin. It wasn't just that they had sin, that their very nature was tainted, but Jesus remained pure. And you can look out on the world and be just frustrated And I know I am. I had to stop listening to political talk radio because the corruption and the dirtiness of this world makes me depressed and angry. And it should be no surprise to us because the world is full of humans and run by humans. We're all sinners. We're all tainted. But Jesus is pure. While having walked among us, while having been tempted like we were. And this for your life and for who you see yourself to be and how you think about yourself and what you want your story to be like. This should just give you joy. 
all the stories that I can think of, the, when, when a story ends where everyone's happy, I hate those stories, right? So this is like the Disney model, right? At the end, the bad guy's in jail, everyone's happy until they make a sequel. But, you know, e- everything's great, everyone's at a dance party, and it's fantastic. And I just can't stand those stories because it's a lie. Life doesn't work that way. There's always loss. There's always some sliver of corruption in the story. And so they're presenting a false version of reality to me. So what are we to do as Christians? We want a story that ends where everything is right and good. You see that that can only happen in Christ. He is the only pure one. So when he returns to make all things new, it really will stick. No more pain, no more suffering for his people. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. So where do you draw deeply from from to find joy and happiness in this tragic world? Might I suggest a place you might not think to look? The purity and uncorrupted nature of Jesus Christ. There he is, ruling from heaven, interceding for you with not a sliver of corruption in him. He's pure. And might I add, that's your destiny as well, that he will make you clean. The next contrast is, that the Old Testament priests were sinners like us versus the sinlessness of Christ. Sinners like us versus sinless. And you can see this, that he is separated from sinners, it says. Separated from sinners. He's not a sinner like us. Didn't we just talk about this? Yes, we did. But the author isn't just stacking terms that mean the same things. He's actually getting at something a little bit different. Think about it this way. This is to magnify the compassion of Jesus. All of Jesus' life could be summarized as an act of mercy and compassion. Because he had no sin to his account. When we're we're in an argument with someone, maybe your spouse, you say, well, you did this, so can't you have mercy towards me? We're all sinners here. We all fall short, so can't you give me a break? Can't you cut me some slack? Think of Jesus. No sin. No lack of righteousness. Perfect and holy. Yet he is the one who shows unending compassion. And mercy, his whole life, an act of mercy and compassion. What about you? I would argue that that is perhaps a very easy way to think about the life that pleases God. Can you summarize your life as one long drawn out act of mercy and compassion? Set that as a goal for your life, brothers and sisters. Don't set a retirement goal or a career path or a degree plan or places you want to go, degrees you want to get. I want my life to be a long drawn out act of compassion and mercy. That's the way of Jesus. And it says that he, the next contrast is that he, uh, Jesus was exalted above the heavens. So the Old Testament priests were 
in the grave. They still are. They're, if you can go, you could, maybe you could find them, but they're not marked. That just illustrates their obscurity. But their bones are still decaying, or have already decayed. They're in the grave. Jesus has been raised from the grave, and more so than that, been exalted above the heavens. So what does this have to do with me? Where Christ is matters to you. Where Christ is matters to you because that's where you will go. Jesus prays this in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is praying that all those that the Father has given him would one day be with him to see his glory. So where Christ is, that's where you're going. Doesn't matter what you may call it, heaven, paradise, the hereafter, the land beyond the Jordan, whatever title you give to it, you're going to where Jesus is. That's your destiny as a Christian. And we'll have to conclude here because we're out of time and I know that patience are precious things. But think about this. What does this have to do with your life? Are you getting ready for that day? That day when you yourself are raised above the heavens, exalted above the heavens to where Christ is? If you're in Christ, that's your destiny. That's what your life is about. Are you getting ready for that day? John says it this way in 1 John 3. Everyone who thus hopes, meaning hoping in Christ's return, hoping in the glory to be revealed unto us, hoping in the resurrection, everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. Are you ready to be exalted above the heavens? To be seated with Christ, to rule with him and to minister with him as a priest. This is a lifelong preparation. And there are things to do in preparation every day. So we've been given this new covenant. And it's better because we have a greater high priest and we've seen all the ways we've covered nine so far today that he is better, contrasts or comparisons. And we've seen that our life is meant to be about this new identity that we have in Christ. And hopefully I've said enough to attempt to agitate and to show you this new identity that is yours, this gift that God himself has given you in Christ. Might we give each day to live consistently with it? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, who has been exalted above the heavens. I pray that we would rest in his promises. We would draw from his strength. Realize that he is our righteousness and stop trying to earn your favor by doing good things. Let us rest in the knowledge that all of your favor, all of your love is concentrated on us now because we're in Christ. For those in this room who 
are not in Christ, who've been agitated enough this morning to know and sense that this life is not theirs yet. They may have been pretending, maybe through fear of man or confusion. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus today. I pray these things in His name for His sake. Amen.